Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to MedHeads. Today we continue our conversation with Chrissy. How are you, Chrissy? I'm good, thanks, Virgil. How are you? I'm great. So good. we've talked about your vulnerabilities to alcohol and we've talked about your initial experiences with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I'd like today to focus in on the rock bottom, the turning point for you and alcohol. Now, people don't reach that rock bottom until they go through a number of phases. So. You know, they lose the joy of alcohol, so the impulsivity changes to compulsivity, and then they start engaging in behaviors that are disruptive to their friends and family. So, for instance, they might hide alcohol. And then they start, you know, developing the physical signs of withdrawal, you know, especially in the morning, the shakes, the sweats, that kind of thing. So, did any of that happen to you? Can you relate to any of that in your story? Um, yes, I can. It did, it did happen to me. Um, so as, as to whether or not that was my rock bottom, um, because I, that, that took place for quite some time before I actually decided, um, to, to seek help. But, um, I mean, look, going back a little bit, um, probably 12 months before I finally stopped drinking or asked for help, um, something happened where I knew that my um, condition had sort of progressed. So, so I had just had uh, twin boys in September 2009, mm. and um, and that was all wonderful. Um, obviously, hard work, and you know, and we had a two and a half year old uh, toddler at home. So, um, I was working pretty hard around the clock. But um, they were born in the September, and uh, I had started drinking pretty quickly uh, after coming out of um, hospital. In fact, my cousin drove down from Bensdale and and, um, and visited me in the hospital and we had a drink then and I essentially didn't stop. Um, I chose not to uh, breastfeed um, because obviously I knew that um, drinking was going to be a problem with that. So um, I remember thinking, mm, that's that's not a great sign, Chrissy, because the first time when I'd, we'd had our daughter, I did try and breastfeed. It didn't work out, but I did try, whereas I'd lost that um, motivation. Um, by, by December 31st, which was not much more than 12 weeks later, it was New Year's Eve, and <clears throat> we went out that night, and for the first time ever, uh, alcohol had actually stopped yeah, it stopped working. It didn't do what it used to do. Um, and that's mm. really hard to actually explain because um, I'm not sure what it used to do. I suppose I used to get a sense of freedom, um, a, a sense of ease and comfort that had gone and I was starting to search for more. Um, and mm. so at that New Year's Eve, I, for the first time, really upped the ante in my substance use. And that frightened me because I now was married with the house with three children and 12 weeks after having, you know, giving birth to twins, I, I was doing something that I essentially swore I'd never do. Um, or, I, or I certainly thought that if I go down that avenue, then it's probably a death sentence for someone so, like me. So what did you do then? What was so awful? I mean, you've said that alcohol didn't work for you. 
okay. didn't give you the so, buzz. It didn't numb the pain that you you were experiencing. That's what you'd said before. Yeah. What did you do? Well, what were you about okay. to do that was so, so frightening? Um, look, it might not be frightening to, to too many people, but um, mm. I began to smoke methamphetamine, which I had mm. not um, wanted to touch. I knew, um, actually, worse than that, had I had I gone down an, uh, a heroin avenue, um, I knew that would have been an absolute death sentence. If I'm honest, my substance mm. of choice would be of the sort of... Um, depressant variety, if that makes mm. sense. So I knew that heroin to me, you mm. know, I might as well start planning my own funeral. Um, yeah. Methamphetamine was, I guess, a step down from that, a totally different class of drug, but I still knew that I was, I was changing it up and, yeah. um, and had, yeah, really young. I, I, I had everything that I thought that I needed uh, mm. or that I wanted in life. I had everything that I thought um, that if I had it in place, I'd be able to manage or control my substance use or my drinking. Yeah. And that just wasn't the case. Um, yeah. so, so, sorry. So it's really interesting what you say, because alcohol had stopped giving you joy. Mm -hmm. And it was your quest for joy that drove you to, in your words, up the ante and then start using a stimulant. And, and the reason why stimulants are so addictive is because they just give you joy. You know, mm -hmm. for those those first, you know, the, the, the whole point about the, the stimulant effect is that it actually releases a flood of dopamine in your brain, which is the joy hormone. Mm -hmm. So for you, it wasn't necessarily the switch from compulse, from impulsivity to compulsivity. It was just this utter lack of joy in, in a situation when you should have actually utterly been happy. You know, you were a new mother again. Your family was complete. Everyone was healthy. It was all looking mm -hmm. rosy. Yet within you, you, you were... You were feeling empty. Yeah, I, I was actually, and, and you've hit the nail on the head. That's the first time I remember mm. feeling extremely emotionless. You know, mm. I really, I think um, I used to look at my babies and as much as, look, I had that innate um, instinct to obviously care for them, but I really was searching for that connection and I was wondering why am I not feeling this? Why do I not feel like mm. you said, like joy? Why why mm. do I not feel happiness just by going for a walk outside? And I really yeah. felt that I was lacking. Yeah. Could it have been also that you had some form of postnatal depression that perhaps wasn't realised at the time or recognised? Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think that is highly possible. Um, mm. I actually did seek treatment for that or seek mm -hmm. um, help through a GP who. Yeah. Um, did put me onto an antidepressant, and mm. um, and that began, you know, to shift things somewhat. However, to be perfectly honest, my my drinking didn't really change. So, so as much as um, I said I'd upped the ante, I, that was not something I continued. It actually gave me a fright. I sort of thought, what am I doing? This is this is not going to end well. Oh. Um, and so I backed backed off. And of course, in my the way that I rationalise things is that you know. Well, alcohol isn't going to be too bad if you know if that if that was going to be my next step so so um i continued to drink even though it wasn't really working um and i got to a point where as you mentioned before uh, i didn't realize but i had sort of um i'd moved into the dependent stage so mm. um when i would get up for night feeds overnight um mm. i'd be really really shaky and uh, when I put the bottles in the microwave, you know, um, to warm, I would 
just slam down a quick glass of champagne or wine or whatever was in the fridge um, mm. because I knew I'd be sitting there for 45 minutes or an hour and it was going to be, you know, a hard slog without that. That worried me again. Um, mm. it, if I'm what honest, about the morning? It, so you were yeah, using it, alcohol at night. What were you like when you woke up in the morning? Were you able to get, did you need a heart starter as it were? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would have described, I can't remember if it was my mum who described me as a koala. Like just, I just grazed all day. Like I, I just um, topped up mm. all day. So I didn't yeah. in the end get um, sort of blind drunk unless I went out, you know, for a massive night. But generally mm. just from day to day, I needed to maintain a certain level of, um, mm. I guess, you know, intoxication. So I wasn't feeling the physical effects and, and that scared me. Um, I began to hide it from my husband would come home from work and, you know, I would pretend I'd just cracked open a bottle and I'd be on, it could have been bottle number two or three. And, um, I'm not quite sure. Um, and I had sort of mother's group people coming around and I'd always try to, um, yeah put on this facade that everything was okay but it was always really obvious when if i didn't have a drink that's when people knew that i wasn't okay and i really did tremble and i really did become um unwell i couldn't function very well at all um yeah and yeah so one night mm. i um i don't recall doing this but i called around a whole heap of um detoxes and rehabs I probably would have Googled alcohol problem and, um, you know, all sorts of things might have come up first, 12 step programs, whatever, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would have said, well, no, I'm not that bad. I'll just, I'll search for, you know, something a bit further down the line. And, and, um, and yeah, so I made a whole lot of phone calls and the next morning, uh, I had a phone call back from a service. Um, and that was the service that I was, um, yeah, to enter about seven days later. Um, they just happened to be the first service to call back and uh, it went from so, there. that fateful night when you made that phone call, what was going through your mind at the time? Um, the actual night, I couldn't tell you because, mm. yeah, I don't have a good recollection, but um, I remember thinking if I don't do something as much as I've talked about wanting to die my whole life, um, clearly I haven't meant it. Otherwise I would have done it. Um, and I remember thinking if I don't do something, I will die. I knew, I just knew instinctively that I was Mm. pretty sick. Um, but did you want to die? Was there a part of you that felt suicidal? Yes. The only, the part of me, I, I often would think, especially when I looked at my kids and my husband, I'd think, honestly, you know, I'm just so useless, just such a burden to people. And I was um, constantly, you know, just a concern, a, a thorn in people's side. And I hated that. I really hate being, um, you know, annoying. Um, anyway, so I knew that I was that, but I sort of thought, so when I'd think about taking my own life, I honestly thought of it as being the right thing to do for, say, my children who would have people, you know, at least when they grow up, um, that have other people, decent people to take care of them. So I could just step aside and, you Mm. know, whereas, um, yeah, a a part of me felt that uh, if I didn't get better, that that was almost a duty 
The other yeah. part of me felt that um, I just, I've never tried to stop drinking. The, the thought of being told that I can never drink again, that's probably what stopped me from seeking treatment sooner. I knew that if I got into treatment, that any medical professional, well, I, I felt that I knew that they would say, mm. you can't drink again, or you shouldn't drink yeah. again. And, and that frightened you. That, oh my gosh, terrifying, yeah. like terrifying. So what, what could someone have said to you at that time to ease your fear? Because that, that was a barrier for you to access treatment, wasn't it? So. From, from a therapist's point of view, what can someone say to get them over the barrier? What, can you, what would you say now to someone listening to this who's going through what you went through? I would say nothing has to be... I, I would say not to look at anything um, for the rest of time because looking down the track, it's, it's just too monumental, it's too overwhelming. Mm. I would say if you can keep it in today and one just for today, absolutely, just one for today, time, sweet Jesus. One, exactly. <laughs> and no, and that's so true because I can uh, do something for 12 hours today that yeah. would absolutely, you know, um, terrify me if I had to do it for the rest of time. But, yeah. you know, it's such a basic, basic piece of advice. Mm. Um, but yeah. it's so true because... You know, I can I can break the day into increments. You know, um, that are achievable, mm. that are manageable. Um, mm. That's what I would say. Absolutely. Right. That. Hmm. Yeah. So when you were just before you'd made that phone call, <laughs> was there ever a time that you'd failed in your obligations as a mother or as a wife or as a friend as a result of the alcohol? Oh. Does anything? <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, that, I mean... Is there anything you'd like to share uh, with us? Uh, the truth about my alcoholism is that, um, and I've mentioned, you know, in, in earlier um, chats with you, that, you know, once I have that, that first drink, I, I, something, something clicks over and I cannot stop. And so the truth mm. about my drinking is that, you know, all of my best laid plans... Um, they're just thrown thrown to the scrap heap. My children are thrown under the bus, um, and I will do anything to get the next drink because I literally have a physical fear uh, and a mental fear of running out. So I left my children at home in Porticots. Um, I had two Porticots, and I left, you know, a, say three year old in one who couldn't climb out, and twin boys in the other who certainly couldn't climb out and um and i would drive up to the bottle shop because i'd run out of alcohol and i thought that that was you know the right thing to do to not put them in a car when i was drink driving and um and yeah that they were um left alone which it wasn't for long periods but i'm not <laughs> i can't mm. minimize it was horrendous yeah. it's not it's yeah. not the right thing to do but it mm. is the truth about what happens when I have that first drink. And I can mm. sit there. It becomes so insatiable. And I know, you know, my mum always says, it's just so greedy, Chrissy. I'm like, it's it's not greed. Something else happens because I'm not mm. a greedy person in terms of when it comes to money and, and you know, material things and belongings. I'm not a greedy person. And, it, mm. and if I don't put a drink in my system, I don't crave alcohol. It's once I've put it in, something mm. happens, you know, and mm. 
and that's where and obviously I build up you know a tolerance and I have to drink more and then I build up a dependence and then when I can't you know it, it just becomes this vicious cycle for me but you know um yeah that those sorts of things and things that I'm not proud of um mm. you know not being able to get up in the morning although for the most part for the most part I could as I said I, I was almost robotic like like I could do things I just didn't do them with emotion I didn't do them with love I didn't yeah I wasn't mm. um I didn't have that maternal uh f yeah feeling well you didn't I have the space for it did you that. yeah I mean because no, you are maternal you know you, you know well, you've got three <laughs> gorgeous children you know you are maternal you just at that time you didn't mm. have the space for it because you had lost control, alcohol had taken control of your life. Yeah. And as a result of that, you'd failed in your, well, I mean, you, you were having problems meeting your obligations as, as, yeah. as a mother. Which yeah. are, and those are the diagnostic criteria of, a, of an alcohol use disorder. You know, mm. what you're describing are actually symptoms of the medical condition that is alcohol use disorder. And so did that, that uh, inability to meet your obligations, did that weigh upon you when you were thinking about, you know, where you were, should, should or should you not um, take your own life? Yeah, yeah it did. Um, I think it, look, I can't, I can't um, honestly recall so much around, um, you know, whether I thought about those things before, you know, went in, mm. in the context of taking my own life, but in the context of wanting to get better, they certainly um, contributed to that, which I suppose mm. is a good thing. So they, they definitely became that mound that was being mm. thrown, you know, all these bits and pieces being thrown on. Um, mm. And it, it, I guess, created a whole lot of guilt, a whole lot of shame and a massive amount of remorse. Every time I woke up in the morning, I'd think, I cannot believe you've done it again, Chrissy. And it was just Groundhog Day. Like, I just thought, is this all there is to life? Like, and, you know, knowing now that it gets progressively worse rather than better, like I might have periods of where it got better, but in overall, in a really long, long line, it, it got progressively worse. And um, yeah, and it just chipped away. And I got really, really, as they say, sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I never mm. felt normal i always felt anxious if i wasn't drinking um i f i didn't look forward to events anymore i'd think what's going to happen what am i going to do or say you know I, I had lost control of yeah hmm. my behavior and i yeah. could not um predict the outcome of anything so you you reached out for help you made a you did a google search and then you made a phone mm -hmm. call mm -hmm. You can't remember what that was like for you at the time because it was late at night, you said. Yeah, that's right. Um, mm. I, okay, I'll tell you, uh, and I'm, the, the, the absolute turning point, my absolute rock bottom, and I don't know if it was the morning before I called rehabs or a couple of mornings before, but, um, my absolute rock bottom was coming out one morning, had the shakes, felt horribly unwell, um, and it was seven o'clock in the morning, and I thought, I looked in the fridge, and we'd had people over 
or my husband had had people over the night before and um and there was nothing left in the fridge and that was unlike me because i i always kind of kept something aside hidden somewhere you know um anyway i had this panic that oh my goodness there's nothing left and um and yeah and i looked outside and there was an old bottle of champagne with three quarters full and people had used it as an ashtray and I remember looking down at the what my watch thinking I've got two hours until the bottle shop opens I can't wait that long so I got a strainer and I strained out the cigarette butts and I just slammed a bit down to stop shaking and I knew then in that moment that I was in some serious serious trouble so um it, it look it got to the stage where it's do or die. So, you know, I had always, as I said, spoken about wanting to die, not being of this world for very long, all the rest of it. But I knew that I had been pushed back into a corner where I was now given the option, like you, I knew I'd die or you do something about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, even though I came from a family of alcoholics, um, lots and lots of addiction throughout, I'd never heard of of anyone who'd recovered. I really, I mm. hadn't. I had not, there was not one sober recovered person in my family. So I didn't know how to recover. And that's why I Googled. Like I, I you know, I'm not sure if I was looking for counselling, if I was, I, I knew I had to be taken away from alcohol because all of my, you know, all the conditions that I put upon myself, never ever, I never had stuck to them. So mm. I knew that I'd have to be taken away, I suppose. But um yeah, I, I obviously got to the stage where, as I said, um, it was that ultimatum that no one, a doctor hadn't given me, but I knew something yeah. within told me that you're in real trouble. So the the decision to, to, to seek help, that in itself was frightening for you as well, wasn't it? Having to come yeah. to terms with that. Absolutely. Um, I was concerned about, you know, um, if I seek help, like I've got three young children, it's going to be pretty obvious if I go away somewhere or whatever. So yes, I was concerned about what others might think. Uh, in the end, though, again, I was just so unwell that, you know, all of those concerns were going to mean nothing if I was six foot under. So it, that's, that's, that's where I had to get to personally to even entertain the idea of stopping drinking. So mm. I know for me it's frightening, but um, yeah, I, I had to I had to be really, really frightened that my only alternative was death. Otherwise I probably would have kept, um, continued drinking to be perfectly honest, you know, but I'd had too many other symptoms as well that I didn't know exactly what they were, but I knew that they were alcohol related, you know, and they mm. were starting to scare me. So physical symptoms where, you know, I was 33, nearly 34 years old. Um, I knew that I was too young to start experiencing some of the symptoms that I was. Um, and I thought, well, you're not going to. There was a time in my life where I hoped to live until 60. Um, and that would have been quite okay, you know, for me. And then, then there was a time where I thought, well, gee, I hope I get to 50 you know, and when I was really hoping that I'd get to 40 or 35, then I knew that, yeah, uh, something's yeah. got to change. So it was the it was the enormity of the starkness of the choice that you saw before you that actually gave mm -hmm. you the strength to to reach out and, and make that phone call. Mm -hmm. How important 
was it for you, the reception that you received from that service or that, that callback? I mean, how, how, what did it feel like being called back? How did they treat you? How did they make you feel? Um, the lady on the phone was really lovely. She certainly wasn't at all judgmental. I remember little things like she called me sweetheart, you know, something like it's, it's something small. Um, but she was just a kind, nice, loving person. Um, and as I've mentioned before, you know, I probably had some, um, mothering, uh, issues and I honestly really responded to this person, to this lady. Um, she, she then went on to tell me that a lot of the people, not all of the people, but a lot of the people in the particular service that she'd called from, um, were in recovery themselves. Um, that kind of baffled me. Um, but yeah, I, it certainly sparked my interest. Mm. Um, and, and she also said, how much are you drinking? And I said, probably about two bottles of sparkling a day. And I knew that that was at least half of what I was really drinking. And mm. she said, and she said, you definitely need to be here. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, if I need to be there on half, like yeah. I better start packing yeah. my bags, you know? And, and I would have said I was a really honest person. Fergal. I really would have said mm. I was a very honest person, but when it, when it came to the protection of mm. my only um, outlet, yeah. yeah, I wasn't very honest. But, you know, as you now know, I mean, you work in, in, uh, in an environment whereby you care for people uh, with alcohol mm. use disorder, and, as, and you know that I do as well. Mm. We all know that to basically double whatever people tell us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, yeah. I, for those watching, thinking, should they or should they not make the call, you know, and, and do they really have to tell? I would like to say to anyone watching, Therapists know that you double what is told to you as a matter as, as a starter for 10 and then more, you know. So, you know, I, I don't personally believe that it's important to yeah. know exactly how much someone is drinking. I think what's more important is to assess the degree of dependency and the degree of impairment. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how, how challenging is alcohol? So, what, what has alcohol done to destroy your life? That's more for me, you know, mm. the difference between two bottles of wine and four bottles of wine as well. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't really change my management. What do you think, to, what do you think about that? Or am I, am I taking at it, looking at it from a more medical model? Is that something you'd agree with? No, I think that's, um, I completely agree with that statement that it's mm. not, cause you know, I've met a lot of people. I, I really don't think it's not the quantity that, that, yeah, that we drink obviously, um, from a withdrawal point of view and you would know yourself that yeah you obviously need to manage that a bit differently but um but in terms of the everyday impact on people's lives yeah, yeah um it's it's certainly not the quantity it's it's the um disturbance i suppose yeah. you know that it has yeah. on people's lives and yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so we're, we're running out of time chrissy um and we, I really appreciate your, your honesty and your sharing your story with us thus far. What single message of hope would you give someone watching this who's sitting there at rock bottom and, and, and thinking, should they or should they not make that phone call? What would you say to them? 
that's a that's a you know what i would say um i would say what do you really have to lose in the end you know my misery is out there waiting if i want to if i want to go back there tonight it's waiting for me it's not going anywhere so what do what do you really have to lose um you know i took a leap of faith um i didn't know that's what it was but i did it paid off you know and mm. i mean I, I i've said it before it's a life beyond my wildest dreams um extremely ordinary but that's all i wanted i wanted ordinary and i wanted feelings you know i wanted mm. to love and i wanted to smell the flowers and look at the sky and i get those things today you know i really mm. do um i get so much out of living and i don't know who that person was 10 years ago i don't know who she is but i remember um mm. and i'm really grateful to have moved forward but yeah i would say what have you got to lose um yeah. I know I had a lot to lose if I stayed where I was, you know, yeah. so that's what I would say. Well, Chrissy, thank you very much. And I really look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Fergal. That's all for today's MedHeads. I'm Dr. Fergal Armstrong. We'll see you next time.